This is The Film File, the film podcast brought to you full of film geekery by film geekerists. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And this week's show... It's dedicated to Stephen Young. And he's probably sat really happy, or he's washing his dishes, listening to us on the podcast while he's doing some housework, and he's probably just giggled and started chuckling to himself, and he's going to be so thrilled, and he knows why. Shall, shall we explain why for those, <laughs> hello Utah, those people who um, are new might to not the show. know? Yeah. If you're a long-time listener, you'll have noticed a running gag which comes back every few episodes, and that's whenever we start saying, you know, get in touch with um, any suggestions of deep dives or any films you want us to watch. Approximately 18 months ago, <laughs> Stephen got in touch with a... He gave us a few films, but one of them that he's been desperate for us to watch has been Lovely Bones. Yes, we've mentioned this many times in Deep Dives, that we will <laughs> get round to watching Lovely Bones. And this week we're doing just that. Our deep I mean, dive. We could, we could have been cruel then and just said, <laughs> and, and we're well, going to do that next month. <laughs> yeah, this week it's Serpico. <laughs> No, you know, it's 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 uh, Peter Jackson's Lovely Bones. So, uh, how are you, Andy? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm, I'm having a few days off work at the moment. Oh, good man. Half-term here in uh, It was perfectly timed. Yeah, yeah perfectly timed. Saturday, Sunday, Monday and Tuesday off because I'm off down to Manchester to go and see Mr. Weird of the Al Yankovic tomorrow. Ooh. Where's he playing? What's the venue? Uh, the O2 Apollo. Oh, fantastic. Great venue. Yeah, it's a lovely old... old it's a listed building, it is. isn't it? It's yeah. beautiful. Beautiful. I once filmed a bodybuilding competition there. It was one of the funniest days of my professional career. It was a, a world I knew nothing about. And instantly, it was a world I didn't want to know anything about even more after that. But it was it was a bizarre, bizarre day. Oh, that's good. going to be good fun. You've got to tell us about it next week. Oh, Make yeah. it part of one of your reviews. Be one, or it might be a neat thing next week. Who knows? Ah, who knows? Let's hope so, eh? Mastodon Challenge. Uh, I've heard we had uh, some good responses, some new people as well joining us on Mastodon. Yes, uh, we've, we've had some good responses to this week's challenge, which, if you remember, was you've got a chance for a pitch meeting with James Gunn and Saffron to pitch a DC character or film for one of their waves of DC movies. Who would you pick? And the responses were diverse, and that's what I liked. And also, it's interesting to note that we put the same question out on Twitter as we put out on Mastodon, and we had a much better response on Mastodon, despite having less followers there, which kind of is starting to show how the Twitter algorithms work against you unless you pay for a blue tick, and that's why I don't like Twitter anymore. My Twitter's all screwed up. I don't get tweets from people that I follow anymore for some reason. Yeah. I get tweets from uh, racists. <laughs> I get tweets from uh, members of right-wing cults, but I don't seem to get tweets from people I follow anymore. I, I get tweets from either crypto scammers, which I, I'm not interested in crypto, or the hashtag brigade, which is another reason not to go on there. The hashtag brigade are going mental at the moment to try to oh, buy a James it. gun. And they're going to be spending Valentine's Day. Some of them have posted out that they're going to stay at home and post out at least 1,000 times all their hashtags. And they still think that means that when they have a million hashtags, that means there's a million people. No, that means there's approximately 100 of you with you're all posting it 1,000 times. You Muppets. <laughs> Did you hear the one? This feels like a gag before we get to the Mastodon Challenge. Did you hear the one of the hashtag sell the Snyderverse to Netflix? Yeah, because Zack Snyder owns DC. No, no, he doesn't. Yeah. 
they, they haven't got a clue. They don't know what they're doing. They're, they're on another planet. And also, they're, they're kind of ignoring the fact that Zack Snyder has posted his support of James Gunn and his vision. And vice versa. And, yeah, James Gunn has, has chatted to Zack and, you know, that they have a good relationship and they're very supportive of each other. But, you know, these people aren't Zack Snyder fans and they're not DC fans. If they were DC fans, they'd get excited at the range of films that James Gunn's announced because it's fat diverse and it's what they've been wanting for ages. If there were Zack Snyder fans, they'd be happy that Zack is doing his own thing without interference over at Netflix with all the things he wants. They are just little fanboys of two terrible films. Yeah. Anyway... Back anyway, to the Mastodon Challenge. Back to the Mastodon Challenge, yes. We got diverted there, uh, but I, I felt it needed to tie in. So, you have a chance to have a pitch meeting with James Gunn and pitch a DC character or film. Who would you pick? William Bowen over on Mastodon. Captain Carrot and the Zoo Crew. Oh, yes. Wow. Come on. Straight out You've the just gate won the internet, that one. Sir. That's it. What a brilliant pick. Captain Carrot issues have been dropping on the DC Infinite comics app over the past few months, and I've been enjoying going back into them without having to dig out a long box of comics and dig through all them. Multiverse of Badness, great name, said, uh, I want a gritty detective comedy drama starring The Question, trying to take down Snowflame. Oh, yeah, I'm a big question fan. I read the 1980s Denny O'Neill run uh, recently, and that and uh, Mike Grell's run on Green Arrow. Boy, they, were they good? Because they entered into their sort of du uh, deluxe format stuff that yeah. DC was doing at the time. They were awesome between both. My kind of gritty comic book stories. Fantastic run. Uh, yeah, question. Without question, there should be a question. Nigel Frobisher said, always Section 8. Okay, never been a, a, a big reader, so don't really know that, know that particular series. I'm going to have to dig into Section 8 stuff just to try out. What I'm liking about these responses is that it shows that James Gunn's approach of going for the more diverse and lower, lesser known characters seems to be the popular one because that's what people want. Canuck McKern said Midnighter. I know he might appear in The Authority, but the world deserves a Midnighter solo movie. Yep. I'll go for that. Not been on my radar. I know who the character is. I believe he's, he's a gay character, like a kind of Batman-esque character. And, and sorry if, if you're big fans of Midnight, I don't know. Just sort of written him off with, with two sentences. And it's just not a character I've read. But um, I'll, I'll, eventually, I'm pretty sure I will. David, a.k.a. Dusk Comics. I would want to do a movie around Mr. Freeze or Wonder Woman, which I'd like to see Wonder Woman reprise. I'd love to see her come back. I'm hoping that we've not seen the last of Gal Gadot. Mm. Mr. Freeze movie. I mean, well, you know, he's a villain, but he's one that has like a bit of heart. Yeah, if you've ever seen the animated Mr. Freeze mm. episodes, they were, they were brilliant. Sub-Zero. They were some of my favourite episodes. Yeah. I thought he was one of the most interesting of the Batman pantheon of villains. Jan Fantastic, even though it would be a chance to do something big, and I like this idea, I would just pitch Sam's story from Superman for All Seasons as a sad little short film. Oh, yeah. And I love that idea. I love the idea of a TV series of short stories that aren't superhero-led, the more personal. Well, there was, for some time, that was going to kind of happen. There were going to be short animated Ooh. stories. Uh, Kevin Smith, I think, was showrunner on it. At one point, but sadly, uh, and this was only until recently, um, it didn't go anywhere because I remember him saying pitching a, a Jimmy Olsen yeah. story. So yes, there, were, there was talk. Uh, there was also there were the short DC animated films from several years ago. I remember a, a fantastic Green Arrow one, and uh, there was a, a, a brilliant Shazam stroke Captain Marvel one at the time as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I love those kind of not really focusing on the superhero aspect stories. They're some of my favourite issues. I mean, I still remember that there was the issue of Fantastic Four set during Secret Wars too, when 
the kid heard her worship Johnny Storm and ended up setting himself on fire. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, that was, that was heartbreaking, that, that issue. But it was yeah. such a beautiful personal story about the impact that power can actually have on someone without power. I'm well, well for that idea. And then the last one from Macedon was Quasar told us, I just pitch. This gets my big thumbs up. All-star Superman. Well, that seems to be on James Gunn's uh, radar because when he tweeted that he was going to be doing Superman, he showed some of the books he was reading and Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman was part of that. So I don't know if that's part of the plan for this upcoming Superman Legacy movie. I I had one. Well, I've got two characters I would like to see. Uh, I would love to see Commandy. If anybody remembers Commandy, it was a Jack Kirby creation. Mm. And the story is, is that uh, DC pitched to 20th Century Fox to get Planet of the Apes. Marvel got it. So DC, well, Jack Kirby in particular, came up with his own version of it, Commandy. And it's just rife for either a movie or a TV series. But I think a movie. Mm. And as far as a TV series goes, Dead Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that that's a great shout. Um, you posted your... Commandy over on Twitter. Also over on Twitter, Antonio Richardson. Again, another person with the thumbs up for a noir film featuring the question. And Lazy Gaga. Now, I don't know whether they were serious with this or whether they know what my feelings are on both of these things. But they just want Cavill back as soups. Yes, I'm all for that. And Ray Fisher as Cyborg. No, no, (laughs) no, no, no. Cyborg, Ray Fisher or not, is not a good character. I can't get down with this. He's an awful character. He's a deus, he's a literal deus ex machina. Yeah, works as part of the Teen Titans. Actually worked really well in the Doom Patrol series because he's a team member. Uh, Even the the solo run in the comic, I I thought was really disappointing. So I'm totally, I was never up, even before sort of the Ray Fisher debacle. Yeah. I was never up for a cyborg movie, I thought. It, it was kind of pushing it too far. Yeah, but that's all our responses this week from the challenge. Uh, some great, I mean, I just love the diverse nature and definitely the question would make a great, yeah. gritty, noir Legion film or TV series. I'd love to see a Legion film. Oh, so many, so many. I'll, I'll stick with Commandy and, uh, and Dead Man. Yeah. Okay, so what question have we got for you this week? Well, as some of you know, and some of you even care about, it is Valentine's Day this week. So your favourite heartwarming or heartbreaking movie that you would show a loved one on valentine's day i'll start the ball rolling before sunrise i had a feeling you picked that one i'm not sure why Did you? But, uh... <laughs> okay. i just think it's uh i think it's a a great it's a great romance film because it's ambiguous like a lot of romances yeah mine probably speaks volumes about uh me as a person it's uh i love you man oh thanks buddy what's your film <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> yeah, thanks, buddy. But watch your film. <laughs> and we could do this joke for the next hour right. and a half, but we've got a show to get on with. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and talking of a show, what have we got for you this week? Well, we've got a deep dive into Peter Jackson's Lovely Bones. We've got reviews of... I'm going to be covering The Whale and Causeway. And in time for that special place in your heart. Yes, Valentine's Day. Your place or mine? Uh, my place. Uh, you've got a car. It's a lot easier. No, your place on... We could go on with that for ages. (laughs) This is going to be one of those shows. (laughs) But before any of that, we've got the latest box office and we've got the news in a segment we like to call simply The News. So, Andy, the box office and let me have a think. Titanic, is that going to be breaking the ice? It's 
James Cameron going to be in two of the number three positions for the box office? You tell me. Well, it, it says all about whether Titanic can float or whether it sinks, isn't it? So it wasn't a huge weekend at the US box office, but there was the Battle of the Camerons going on. But in first place this weekend in the US, Magic Mike's Last Dance came straight in at the top spot, only taking 8.3 million. So not a strong opening. The lowest opening for the Magic Mike films to date. Avatar The Way of Water managed to stick into second place, 7.2 million. But close behind it was the 25-year anniversary re-release of Titanic with 6.7 million. 80 for Brady drops down to fourth place this week, 5.8 million. And Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, claws are dug in deep into this top five, 5.6 million. Here in the UK, you can tell us the half term as Puss in Boots, The Last Wish is in the top spot with 3 million. Magic Mike's Last Dance sauntered in in second place with 1.5 million. Titanic's reissue came in in third place, 870,000. Avatar Way of Water, 831,000. And Knock at the Cabin, holding on to fifth place with 537,000. So James Gunn has made the news this week, responding to the Batman casting rumours for his up-and-coming film, Brave and the Bold. And if you listened last week, you heard Andy and I talk about it with a little bit of trepidation. But he has confirmed that they are not bringing back Christian Bale, which had been all over the internet, nor are they bringing back George Clooney or Val Kilmer. But they are, in fact, going for a new actor to play the DCU's Dark Knight. Yep, we'll know confirmations once they actually hire people. But what I am loving at the moment is how James Gunn is keeping his eye out for any rumours going around and debunking them. We're no longer going to have this, a rumour grows out of control over weeks and weeks and weeks because James Gunn, as he said in one of his tweets when people say, oh my God, why are you still, why are you doing this all the time? It's like, because I enjoy it. He he enjoys just going, yep, you're wrong. Yep, you're wrong. Possibly, possibly. And just stopping it becoming just nonsense out there. We've moaned about it a few times on the show of how rumours grow out of control because one one clickbait website announces it and then others feel that they have to jump on board it because they've missed the news and then everyone believes it because they read it in empire and empire would only quoting bleeding cool and bleeding cool would only quoting such and such and if it goes back to big freaking robot then you know it's wrong and you know it's just rubbish (laughs) so we're going to get be getting a lot more of these over the next few weeks so i think a regular thing on the show going forward is going to be james gunn has debunked the following and we work through now after the announcements last week one question that was going round was... I think we asked it, didn't we? What happened to the Constantine film? Well, it's been up and down, hasn't it? Because I read a story saying that they aren't moving forward with the Keanu Reeves-led Constantine film. Whilst Gunn and Saffron didn't mention it last week, it's been confirmed by a spokesperson from Warner Brothers Discovery that the sequel has not been scrapped, despite chatter on social media this past few days suggesting it has been. Um, it's likely the film's going to be one of the Elseworlds titles, so it won't be part of the core DCU. Reeves will reprise his role of the chain-smoking supernatural exorcist demonologist John Constantine from the Hellblazer comics. Watch this space, because as soon as we get any further details, what we do know is Akiva Goldsman is returning to write the screenplay, and we'll be producing alongside J.J. Abrams, and there's something that we also spoke about last week, is like, where's J.J. Abrams in amongst all this? Looks like he's still yeah. got some input on some DC products, and Hannah Mingala is also going to produce. Well, that's good news, because we got quite giddy when the news was announced. Keanu would be returning to the John Constantine role, even though I would still like to see a comic accurate John Constantine. Now, the TV series, for me, Matt Ryan has been the definitive John Constantine. But love has grown, hasn't it, for the Keanu Reeves 
version of this character. Yeah, when we covered it as a deep dive, we spoke about like how it had built up more love over time. And I think, in the, particularly now, Keanu Reeves can own the world as far as people are concerned. More people want to see him on the big screen in this role again than what they did just a few years after it came out. So I think that if any time is right for Constantine to hit back with Keanu Reeves, now's the time. Hey, Andy, did you see the official poster released of today? We record this on a Sunday, so the Super Bowl is running today. That means they are dropping the Flash trailer, but the poster landed this week and it looked pretty darn awesome. Yeah, the image in the Batcave, the Flash with his back to the poster is a central point of it and the Batwing hanging overhead. Yeah, it looks great. It's a great, great poster. You know, a simple yet impactful poster design. It's not overdone. It's not packed with... They could have easily gone, oh, it's multiverse. Let's do what Doctor Strange did and just throw loads and loads and loads of images in of different variations. No, they've kept it simple because it's the Flash movie. And I like I like that new design of the of, of the costume as well. Yes, yeah, and it's much sleeker. I hated the uh, uh, the Justice League version. <laughs> the wannabe uh, Transformer was... version. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It seems that the gossip-mongering has tired a little now and we have heard again only a rumor this will be a big launch pad for the new dcu yeah okay stranger things fans star sadie singh is rumored to be in the cast for beetlejuice 2 as well as as because everybody is as soon as they're out there a mysterious mcu role yeah well everyone's going to be connected to the mcu by somehow, so- yeah it's going to be like seven degrees of <laughs> kevin bacon and now kevin bacon's in the mcu so everyone everyone in the world is now connected is now connected to the mcu don't know anything else really about the beetlejuice sequel it's been on and off for donkey's years i have a script called beetlejuice goes to hawaii which was way back way back when yeah interesting i hope we can see it because the thing about beetlejuice is it doesn't matter how old keaton is he can still play the character yeah i think it'll work and i think i'll be there day one if it does actually get made update on disney situation happened this week because they did the earnings call this week it was revealed during it that They've lost 2.4 million subscribers on their streaming services in the last quarter. However, most of that was driven by their Hotstar service, which is offered in India and Southeast Asia, which lost the rights to screen cricket to Paramount. And cricket is huge in that continent. Yes. In the US, subscribers actually increased. And they're currently sat on 161.8 million subs for Disney+. Plus. So they're not worried. The company expects Disney+, Plus to go into profit in 2024. And part of that will come at a cost-cutting exercise under the recently restored Bob Iger's plans. Yeah, I noticed they were making a lot of redundancies. Yep. The biggest change will be the creation of a new Disney entertainment unit that will encompass all TV and film and be led by executives Dana Walden and Alan Bergman. So they'll be combining all the different elements together, which is where some of the job losses will be taking. $5.5 billion in cost savings is what they're aiming to be cutting back, $3 billion of which will come from cutting non-sports content costs whilst the other 2.5 billion coming from general operating expenses it's going to reduce its workforce by 7,000 employees which is 3.2% of the total employees for the company as part of the efforts despite the content spending cuts they're still expected to spend approximately 30 billion on content alone this year and some of that content they've revealed will be sequels and i'm pretty disappointed and this is the disney thing let's make sequels let's make sequels and it kind of ruined pixar yes because it was the disney insistence of sequels one of these sequels yes i'm interested in and that's because it will be the first sequel to this film 
And that's Zootopia or Zootropolis. Fantastic film. That deserves a sequel. And Zootopia 2 has been greenlit. But then the others. Do we really need a Frozen 3? I enjoyed Frozen 2, but it was a case of diminished returns. And Toy Story 5. Come on. Toy Story 3 was already great closure. That we didn't need Toy Story 4, but at least they closed it off again. And now they're going to open it up. And Tim Allen is getting excited to be returning as the role of Buzz. No, I'm I'm past caring with the Toy Story franchise, and I don't think the general audience are going to care because Toy Story Four, yes, it did well, but it got a very mixed response from the fans. With some yeah. saying should have left it at the third, and I don't think they're going to come back for the fifth one. No, I think it's a bit of a retrograde move. I think. It feels like the last dollar being rinsed out of the merchandising bank to try and just generate more Toy Story toys than it does a necessity to have it. And the same for, for Frozen, to be honest. Yeah, uh, but Disney have always done that. You know, why have one title when you can have 13 sequels to it? Yeah, they're leaning heavily into their currently established IP. So don't expect any brand new ideas, except from the Pixar animated films that we already know are in the pipeline for the next couple of years. Looks like the only originality is going to be Pixar, but then they'll probably just bury them straight onto their Disney Plus service. Well, look at Strange Worlds, which was largely overlooked, but were quite quite clever and quite brilliant. Yeah, it gained a lot of traction once it got released on Disney Plus because they didn't market it when it was coming out for cinemas. No, in fact, if I remember, we talked about it going, it's out this week. Yeah. We do have Pixar's next effort, Elemental, to look forward to and Walt Disney Animation's 100th anniversary celebrations with their feature, Wish, yes. soon to be upon us. Bob Iger also suggested that whilst there's no immediate plans in place, they are open to the idea of selling their stake in Hulu which is 67% stake in it. Currently, Disney have complete control over the service with Comcast holding the remaining shares. And as early as 2024, according to the contract between the two, Disney have the option to buy out the remaining Comcast shares, making Disney take full ownership. But Comcast CEO Brian Roberts has suggested that they might actually be interested in buying out Disney's share instead, which Bob Iger has said that he's open to the idea of it, but it needs to be looked into with more detail about profitability, cost, etc., etc., I think it'd be a shame if Disney uh, scrapped their stake in Hulu because some of the content yeah. that is really good on their Disney Plus service is Hulu content. And if Disney don't have any control over it, Hulu could shop around for other services. I think yes. it's a great bit of prestige stuff. I mean, Abbott Elementary, which won quite a few critical awards, is a series a that show. came from Hulu. So Disney shouldn't shouldn't do this. Yeah, same with Only Murders in the Building, which is a phenomenal show. Basically, if, I, if we know that something's going on Hulu, I get excited because that means Disney Plus is going to be getting it. Yeah. So nobody saw this coming, and did we want to see it coming? And that's Riddick 4. Vin Diesel and David Toy are re- reuniting for the film titled Riddick Furia, the fourth instalment in the sci-fi action series that has run on for three films too many. I am going to stop you there. I... Love the first one. I thought the first one was fantastic. Pitch Black is a great, small, tight, little claustrophobic alien menace film. Couldn't get into the second one. Didn't have a clue what was going on. Had very little interest in it. The third one, I thought, was was pretty good. I enjoyed it. And I'm not against Riddick 4, but I, th- I, thought, I thought it kind of closed at the end of the third one. It depends what they come back with. It's simple as that. The plot line for this new film will see Riddick finally return to his home world 
a place he barely remembers and one he fears might be left in ruins by the Necromongers. There he will find other Fiorians fighting for their existence against a new enemy and some of these Fiorians are more like Riddick than he ever could have imagined. Uh, Twoy is directing from his own script. Diesel's going to star and produce alongside Samantha Vincent and Twoy has said in a statement, our legion of fans have demanded it for years and now we're finally ready to honour their call to action with Riddick Fioria. My collaboration with Vin and One Race has spanned 20 fruitful years as together we've created three movies, two video games and anime production and motion comics this new big screen event will see a return to riddick's homeworld where we finally get to explore riddick's genesis i'll wait and see as with you that first film is great the second film i think i enjoyed a bit more than you did but it was very much it tried to be it tried to be june and john carter and everything all in one it tried to go all epic and grand yeah it was a world building movie as opposed to um a story in its own right but the third film i can't even remember anything that happened in the third film so that's what an impact it had on me i'll wait and see i do like the fact that they've not rushed production on sequels to riddick now, as he said, over two decades, we're only up to um, the fourth film. So at least they're waiting until they feel that they've got something right. Mm. More news on that as it starts to happen. Did you ever see the idea of Faulty Towers returning? Never on my bingo cards, that one, Andy. And I'm not sure what I think of this news. Yes. So Faulty Towers, the one season British TV show, much loved. An interesting rewatch in this day and age but very much of its time and so funny if you just embrace it for what it does, is going to be returning, but not at the BBC because John Cleese doesn't feel that they would get the freedom to make it how they want. Castle Rock Entertainment is the home for the new series who are going to be shipping it around services and it will be written by John Cleese and his daughter, Camilla. And Rob Reiner's involved in this, I believe, as well. Yeah, through Castle Rock. Right. He's acting as producer. Speaking with the right-leaning British news channel, GB News, because of course Cleese is going to talk to the right-leaning British GB News, he's revealed the new series will transport Basil Fawlty from the original hotel's location in Torquay to a small bijou hotel on a Caribbean island and it will provide a suitable backdrop for a modern take on a high-strung hotel manager. In Cleese's terms, if you put it in the Caribbean, it becomes very multiracial. People in the hotel business come from everywhere, so you can bring in lots of different people together. The characteristic of Faulty Towers was the pressure cooker atmosphere created in the hotel. I don't know. Hey, look, I don't know. Until we see it, until we see it, I, I, I can't make any judgment on it. A bit like the rest of the world, it doesn't seem like a great idea but you know john cleese wrote fish called wonder and that yeah. was just just absolute perfection but then he did fierce creatures which didn't live up to the joy for fish called wonder so so who knows <laughs> on the subject of um, aging thespians losing the plot and holding on to some of their past as much as they can warren Beatty doing another interview as dick tracy this weekend never gonna happen in order to retain the rights he lasted one of these back in 2008 but this weekend tcm had a zoom interview where he played the character of dick tracy being interviewed by film critics leonard moulton and ben mankiewicz conducted over zoom the character gripes about how things were represented in his 1990 film and then it goes meta at one point as Beatty himself logs into the chat to answer other questions alongside the fictional character. <laughs> I like that idea. I didn't see it, but I, I kind of like that. It's a charming idea. He's doing this simply because he's got the rights to the character and for any representations that get made on screen. And he clearly doesn't want to lose those rights. But nothing's ever going to happen now with him playing the character anymore. No, no. So why is he so protective of the rights? And why can we not just get a whole new a TV series? 
of Dick Tracy. That would be the best place to put it. You could get BT directing it because he's, he was a great director and uh, a return to Dick Tracy and do something unusual with it. Yep. It won't find an audience in the cinemas because, to be honest, it didn't find an audience in the cinemas the first time around particularly. Yep. But I would be open to a Dick Tracy series uh, with BT producing or directing. But in the meantime, all he's doing is just every 10 years or so, he'll do one of these videos just to retain the rights until something ever happens it's out there online by this point in time i'm gonna check it out and see it because same as you i do like the meta aspect of him actually being interviewed alongside the character whereas last time it was just a straight one-on-one interview this time looks like a bit more fun talented mr ripley series called ripley that we've mentioned before yeah, we're looking forward to it. It's now moved to Netflix. Okay, good. I don't know why it's good, but it's good that I'm going to see it. The deal to move the eight-episode series is not yet closed, but it's expected too soon. Post-production is underway on the project, which was shot last year. Showtime are offloading it, much like what happened to three women last week. That show's ended up at Stars, as the cable channel is set to move under the purview of Paramount+. Plus. So it's before Paramount Plus takes over all their content, stuff that they can get money from in the meantime, they're selling off. The Ripley series, for those who missed when we first spoke about it, Andrew Scott, who you might remember from Fleabag and Sherlock, plays Tom Ripley, the grifter scraping by in 1960s New York, who's hired by a wealthy businessman to travel to Italy to try to convince his vagabond son to return home. Based on the series of books by Patricia Housesmith, this series has so much potential. Yes, yeah. Um, Oscar winner Stephen Zalian has written and directed the entire first season, in addition to serving as executive producer. My hope is that this first season will do well and we'll get to see all five Ripley books at least adapted. We've already seen three of them adapted for the big screen, which have seen Matt Damon, John Malkovich and Dennis Hopper playing the character at some point. And in related news, Oscar winner Helen Mirren is set to star as Patricia Highsmith in Anton Corbin's new feature, Switzerland. Okay. Uh, This character-driven piece begins when Highsmith's late-life solitude in the Swiss Alps is interrupted by Edward, a young literary agent who has been sent by her relentless publishing company to convince her to write one last Tom Ripley novel. Highsmith uses her macabre imagination to scare Edward away. But before they know it, a collaboration ensues, leaving the world they've constructed indistinguishable from their own. I'll tell you what I want to see, and I don't know if it's ever going to turn up in the UK, and that's Poker Face that we talked about. We thought it was going to Netflix in the UK, but I've not heard anything more about it. Ryan Johnson's series. I'm hearing such good things about it. Great reviews. And I really want to see it. Peacock, I believe, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but it's not. Peacock normally lands eventually on one of the Sky channels because they've got the deal with Peacock. But this is another one of those Peacock shows that is currently stuck in limbo mm, for the UK nothing, audience. But I've been a fan of Columbo, which is its kind of DNA origin in this. I I, I really want to see it. So looking yep. forward. If anybody knows where it's going to appear in the UK, please let us know here at the Film File. And Amazon is moving forward with the Spider-Man Noir live-action TV series. Of course they are. It's currently untitled. The series is going to follow the older grizzled superhero in 1930s New York City. The show will be set in its own universe and the main character will not be Peter Parker. I don't have a problem with that. The Spider-Man Noir comics debuted in 2009 and followed a version of the iconic superhero who lives during the Great Depression. I think there's potential in here to have an interesting series. It marks the second project based on Sony's Marvel characters set up at Amazon Prime Video and MGM. The first one being Silk Spider Society from showrunner Angela Kang. I'd rather see those in the movies. Definitely. Several other shows are in the works and it's unknown at this time which characters will be featured in other Amazon shows. But Sony controls over 900 characters associated with the Spider-Man franchise. So hopefully they'll get to tap into 
anything other than Venom, Craven the Hunter, and Madam Web. Man Wolf. There, I'm calling it. I want to see a Man Wolf series. That's pretty much it for this week's The News. But before we go, and and it's always so sad when you've got to say goodbye to very talented people. We've got two very talented people that have created works that have been incredibly meaningful to both of us. So first up, let's talk about the sad passing of Hugh Hudson, uh, who directed one of my favourite films. His first narrative feature Chariots of Fire took the Oscar for Best Picture in 1981. He's passed away age 86 following a short illness. Chariots of Fire was nominated for a total of seven Oscars including Best Director nod for Hudson, won Best Picture score, writing and costume design. This passing comes only months after the passing of the other person associated with that film, Vangelis, who created the film's iconic score. They are responsible together for one of the cinema's most famous scenes, the opening sequence with the runners all dressed in white running along the water's edge. Everyone, even people who've never seen the film, will recognise that scene. Yeah, utterly iconic. Utterly iconic. Hudson's second film is in the list for upcoming deep dives and has been sat in there for a while and is going to get rocketed further up the list. Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan. We've mentioned it a couple of times on the show, the Christopher Lambert take on Edgar Rice Burroughs' classic novel. I've got a lot of love for that film. Oh, that, that's the film, Andy. That's the film. It's I have so much love for uh, Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan. A, a flawed film, yep. but a, 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 a certainly a, a great film. Widely regarded as one of the best Tarzan adaptations ever. Yeah. After that, he directed the much maligned revolution with Al Pacino. And his films from there sort of drifted away from mainstream audiences. Lost Angels, which was quite interesting. Lumiere and Company, I never saw. He was partial director on that as a documentary film. My Life So Far, I Dreamed of Africa. Rupture, Altamira. And he wrote 2022's Tiger Nest uh, with Rupert Thompson. So I remember he did um, a Labour Party film. But really, all that talent sort of drifted away and we didn't see as much of his work as we should have done. I know he worked in theatre for some time. And by the end of the 80s and through the 90s, he was responsible for the decade-long British Airways face campaign of adverts yeah but after such a promising start your first film becomes oscar nominated it did kind of meander away but we'll always remember the great moments that he brought to the screen yes and our next sad passing and this one hit me harder than what it should because the gentleman in question was well into his 90s and had one hell of a career and if you remember on our mastodon challenge we talked about films that were terrible that we loved them and mine was uh, lost horizons in which burt Bacharach. Uh, wrote the songs for and he passed away on February the 8th and is probably one of the greatest American popular composers, songwriter, record producers, arrangers of the 20th and 21st centuries, composed thousands of of pop songs right from the 50s, many in collaboration with the great lyricist Hal David. He had unusual chord progressions. He was influenced by jazz and harmony, received various accolades, including Academy Awards, Grammy Awards, Emmy Awards, songs covered by Dionne Warwick, Gene Pitney, Dusty Springfield, Bobby Gentry, Tom Jones, Herb Albert, and earned a place in in the film file because of the movies he was connected to. Yeah, not just from the soundtracks that he's connected to. I mean, Arthur Two on the Rocks, Night Shift, Butch and Sundance, you know, like you said, Lost Horizon. His earlier ones, the What's New Pussycat and Casino Royale, neither yeah. are great films, but a hip and swinging soundtracks. Soundtracks just awesome. Vibe Absolutely. completely. 
Yeah, but also he popped up in quite a variety of films. Bizarrely, I was only watching two of these over the past couple of weeks and the Austin Powers films. Yes. When the musical interludes are introduced as like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Burt Bacharach, and such a great entertainer. And this is one of those artists who's had so much prominence through the decades since the 50s all the way through that pretty much every generation has had some moments that they've recognised yeah. his work of music or his face connected to something. It's a sad passing. It, it is. It, it's one of those. I'm, I'm as, a, as a music fan, as much as a, a movie fan, I was a, a huge, huge fan of Burt Bacharach's work. He's one of what, my all-time favourite songwriters. I have numerous Bacharach and David collections. Burt Bacharach, the album he did, mm. the Elvis Costello, is just brilliant. His song, title song for Casino Royale, The Look of Love, is the best James Bond uh, song that the series never got. He was a phenomenal, and uh, apparently right up to his his uh, last few years, he was still writing songs, still composing, coming up with ideas, an absolute, absolute genius of uh, not only sad loss to film, but a sad loss to music. Yeah. And that's this week's The News. <laughs> You're listening to your favourite podcast. Yes, it's The Film File. And hey, Andy, do you know that some people listen to this show and haven't subscribed? I mean, that's that's as, almost as bad as people who use torrents to download films, isn't it? It's like Doctor Doom Evil for It's me. just a slap in the face. I mean, we, we love that you listen to the show, but we want to know that you listen to the show. And the best way that you can let us know how much you love listening to us on a regular basis is pop that little subscription button, click it into place, and maybe even, you know, rate us and review us. Give us some feedback. We love that stuff. Remember, tell your friends. Because the more followers we get, the more we can do with the film file. And you can get in touch with us on a whole load of different socials. You can head over to most social media channels and just search for Film File UK. You'll find us on there and be able to get in touch or just keep up to date with us. Uh, Instagram at the moment, whenever I'm watching one of the Oscar-nominated shorts or documentaries or any of the films that have been nominated for awards, I'm popping them up on there so that you will know where you can find them to watch them. Or you can get directly in touch with us. If you want to recommend a film for a deep dive and wait 18 months for us to get round to doing it. Hi, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> Just send us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk. And, you know, we will get round to it eventually. You just have to have patience. Have patience. Send us that email. We'd love to hear from you. Anything to do with film, media, entertainment, get in touch. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. So, yes, it's been years in the making. We finally get around to this week's deep dive. We're going to be talking about Peter Jackson's Lovely Bones. My name is Susie. Hey, look at me! I was 14 years old when I was murdered. I had left Earth, but I hadn't left my unfinished life. My father tried to solve my murder, but he needed my help. There's definitely something wrong with this guy. Can't you just leave it alone? Dad, I saw Susie. I saw her too. The Lovely Bones. The Lovely Bones is a 2009 supernatural thriller directed by Peter Jackson just after his run on Lord of the Rings. It's based on a 2002 novel of the same name written by Alice Siebold. The film stars Saoirse Ronan, Mark Wahlberg, Rachel Weisz, Susan Sarandon, the great Stanley Tucci and Michael Imparelli. And the story follows a girl who is murdered and watches over her family from what's called the in-between. 
and is torn between seeking vengeance on her killer and allowing her family to heal. This is a film that when it got released, it split audiences and critics pretty much 50-50 straight down the middle. However, one thing that came from it is that everyone agreed, whether they liked it or didn't, that the standouts in this film were Ronan and Tucci, with Ronan scoring a Saturn and Broadcast Film Critics Award for her turn, and Tucci getting an Oscar nomination for his turn, that he was only beaten that year because Christoph Waltz just chewed scenery and destroyed everything within Glorious Bastards. We love Stanley Tucci right here on the film file. Just one of those actors that I think whenever he's on screen, even if it's the smallest of parts, he lights up the screen. Even if he's playing an unpleasant character like in uh, The Hunger Games, there's just something about him. And he and uh, Sasha Ronan are the standout in this film. Tucci brings his A game to everything, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Even, even small roles like in Captain America, you miss yeah. him when he's gone. And I thought he was, he was fantastic in this film, as was uh, Sasha Ronan. And that's kind of the, the strength of the film for me. And it's not a film that, I, I, I'm going to say I dislike it, and I, I don't dislike it. I just find it um, a film that I, I found it very hard to find endearing. Mm. There are elements that are imaginative. Uh, the fantasy elements, I think, are, are, are stunning. It's, it's an odd mix of the family drama, which I found sort of overly sentimental, and then that shift in between that and sort of the violent scenes. And and I, and I found it certainly a film of two parallels. Mm. Yeah. As you'll know, this is one of the films that I've never seen. And it's, despite the fact it's come from Peter Jackson, who's a director who I've always had some time for, for some reason, this one passed me by. And so this week was my first experience of this film. And I've heard all the criticisms and I've heard the positive things. I've heard both sides of it over the years. So I didn't know which side I was going to sit on. Jackson is a director who continually manages to surprise me with his changes of style. You know, he used to do early splatter films, which we've yeah, really absolutely. got a deep dive his early splatter career at some point. The real-life drawn heavenly creatures with dreamlike fantasy elements we've spoken about in the show. Mm -hmm. The blockbuster of Lord of the Rings. And The Lovely Bones is a supernatural drama. And it's such a different pacing for him. Uh, but yeah. like you say, it's a film of like kind of two elements. You've got the real-life world and you've got this afterlife element. And what I do like in this, watching this, is how well the two sides are represented with contrasting styles. The real world is a diminished colour palette, ground in gloomy reality. I mean, you could just say that's the 70s, but um, it was ground in a gloomy reality. The afterlife, however, is vibrant in such a manner that many people joked at the time of its release that it's a film where Saoirse Ronan dies and ends up trapped in a Windows XP screensaver, which I feel does some of the imagery a disservice. I get okay. why they say that. Um, the afterlife elements are vivid in colour, a majestic blending of reality daubed with fantasy. The ship in a bottle sequence alone was wondrous to behold. I loved them crashing against the shore. And that's the vivid imagination of Peter Jackson brought to life. But what's interesting is because the two different parallel aspects, you could strip out all the afterlife stuff and all the narration by Saoirse Ronan and just have the real world setting. And you've got a solid one hour drama of loss, grief, and moving on without any of the afterlife element intruding on it. Because unfortunately, it does feel at times that the afterlife element intrudes on what is a good story. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think I've, I've not read the novel. I think a lot of people who 
did felt that it took away some of the soulfulness of the of the book. Apparently, the book goes into much darker moments and doesn't shy yeah. away from the more shocking aspects. But there's just there was just something. I, I, it left me feeling cold rather than feeling enamoured. Hmm. I think it's just one of those films that Peter Jackson was trying to push himself, and uh, he worked. He got solid work out of his cast, but then he gets a bit kind of a bit of a show off when it comes to sort of the celestial, uh, heavenly parts. And I think it sort of disrupts the, the kind of the connection between the two stories. I, it doesn't help that Mark Wahlberg's in it now. I've, Mark Wahlberg's one of those actors that he's, I, I don't know. Mark, I don't know Mark. I really don't. Sometimes uh, he, he's a he's a, always a better supporting character than a lead character. And in this, I just couldn't find the sympathy with him. It's, it needed a, a, an actor of much more gravitas than than somebody like Mark Wahlberg. Well, this film came out a year, was it a year after Mark Wahlberg was in the Happening, and he seems to be still in Happening mode, where he answers everything with a question kind of tone to his voice. Everything is just not coming across naturally. And there's a couple of moments in the film that, you know, you get the father-daughter aspect of the relationship and you, you can kind of see the, some emotion. But he wasn't a strong enough actor, but he was, and it's important to note this, a last-minute replacing, as just before they were going to start shooting, Ryan Gosling departed the project and he was supposed to be the father in this. For those who don't know why Gosling dropped out, and we've never had the definitive reason said, Gosling said that he felt that at the age of 26, it made it hard for people in his mind to believe he would have, was a father to a 14-year-old. But then's the story that as they were getting ready to start shooting, he turns up on set having gained 60 pounds and grown a beard for the role without actually speaking, speaking to Peter Jackson at all first about it. And he was ceremoniously told to depart the project because you clearly don't get it. So Wahlberg was roped in literally at the first day of shooting and given this last minute role. So he's not had time to get into character. He's not had time to really get a feel for it. And that's why he's still in the happening mode because he's literally just come off the set of that straight into this. Sasha Ronan is 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 brilliant. She'd not done a Majestic. great deal before that. She was only 14. She'd only really been seen in Atonement and City of Embers, uh, even though she'd done a couple of other films. But, uh, you know, she carries this film and proved to be the great actor that she's uh, her career's gone on to, to show that she can. I mean, after that, she did films like Hannah, Byzantium, Let's Forget About the Host, Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. But it was really this 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 movie that, that put her on the map and what a, uh, a fantastic performance it is that holds this entire film together. Stanley Tucci makes your skin crawl throughout with a skilled performance that is inspired by the actor's own research into serial killers and how they evaded capture for so long. He adopted mannerisms that had been de detailed in the patterns of murders across the years. You long for his character to get caught and pay throughout yes. because he's so creepy. But it does make his final comeuppance feel a little cheap on the surface. But the story's not about his capture. It's about how lives are affected by loss and grief and Susie's watching from the afterlife as those close to her need to come to terms with their grief and move on. So that's why his, I mean, his passing is exactly the same in the book and it's disposable because it's not the important element. No. So ultimately, I think it's one of those films that when you see it, it will affect you. It's not a terrible film, far from it. No. It's, it's, I'm, I'm doing it a disservice. 
it's not a terrible film. Just for me, it didn't quite land. Uh, Andy, you know, you've got a, a, a different approach to this. Yeah, I've scored this three out, about three out of five on Letterboxd. I, you know what? I would be about the same. I enjoyed it. I can see what was supposed to be happening in it. I just don't feel it balances well. And one prime example of how it doesn't quite balance is Susan Sarandon as Susie's grandmother, is marvellous, as you'd expect Susan Sarandon to be. But tonally, her character's finest moments don't sit well in the mix. The comical house chores montage section Mm. is a joyous moment, but it doesn't feel like it belongs in the same film, especially because that's set in the real-world aspect and it feels too joyous for what should have been the serious drama aspect of it. Uh, And and I think that goes back to my original point is... I think tonally the film the film is a little all over the place. Artistically, it's fabulous. And like I say, if you separate out the two separate separate sections of the film, you've got like a solid drama about a kidnapping and abduction and the grief that follows. And you've got a fantastical reflection on life from the eyes of a 14-year-old girl. But together, I don't think Jackson quite balances it. And the criticisms that you see from the people who've read the book, that this, he says that it doesn't tap into the darker aspects enough and that's what damages it it does make you wonder whether or not Jackson was too enamoured with the fantastical elements to really nail down. And we had the same with Heavenly Creatures, that it doesn't quite get the tone right. It's beautiful, it has great imagery, but it doesn't quite balance or get the tone right. If you want to watch The Lovely Bones, Andy, where can we find it? It's not available for free on any streaming service at this point in time, but if you search around on any rental services, you'll be able to find it, be it Apple, Amazon, Play, whatever. It's out there to rent for a few pounds, or you can buy it. And don't just trust our judgment. Find out for yourself. Yes. We'll be back next week with another Deep Dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy, you're going to get the ball rolling with... The Whale. Which is a film, for some reason, I can't generate any interest in it. I I don't know why, whether it's the stagey settings, the subject matter. There's just nothing that's telling me I want to see this film. Prove me wrong or right. You don't stay in touch with Mom? She really only tells me things about you. Why? Because that's all I want to know about. Why'd you gain all that weight? Someone close to me passed away, and it had an effect on me. You haven't seen her since she was eight years old, and you're going to reconnect with her? Sorry. I don't like this. This isn't a good idea. I'm sorry. You say you're sorry one more time. I will shove a knife right into you. I swear to God. Go ahead. What's it going to do? My internal organs are two feet in at least. This film has been much talked about since the 15-minute stand innovation at the festival circuit last year, and there's been a huge level of buzz around Brendan Fraser's performance, and it's safe to say that the expectation for this film was very high. What is pleasing to say is that it more than delivered on expectations. Focused on events over the space of a week, the film starts with Charlie, played by Fraser, conducting a study class via Zoom, his camera blocked out, before we are introduced to him visually and find out why he hides his image from the world. A morbidly obese recluse, Charlie has been eating himself to death ever since the tragic loss of his partner, his only interactions being with Liz, played marvellously by Hong Chow, his friend and nurse, and a pizza delivery guy named Dan who leaves his food outside for him to collect. When Liz tells Charlie that he's at severe risk of congestive heart failure, he refuses to seek help, but instead contacts his estranged daughter, Ellie, played by Sadie Sink, in order to reconcile with her before he departs this world. The Whale is a beautifully tragic single location exploration of grief, obsession, 
impulse, regret, self-worth, depression, and acceptance. And it's one of the most heartbreaking experiences I've had in a cinema ever. A powerful tale. It's ably held together by Fraser in the central role of Charlie. A likeable figure who you find easy to pity and sometimes hate for his stubborn attitude before realising that the fate he has ahead of him has already been accepted. This is not a film about a man being saved from his self-inflicted fate, but an exploration of why someone would go down that path and what becomes important to them once they've accepted it. In Charlie's case, it's Ellie, and the interplay between the two open up a lot of wounds as he tries desperately to make her show that she does indeed care for people, despite her outward exterior of isolation and teenage angst. Sadie Sink more than delivers in the role, and the interplay between her and Charlie is electric. The additional cast all deliver too, with not one uneven performance between them all. Hong Chow, who stole scenes in last year's The Menu, does so equally here. Aronofsky can sometimes be a bit divisive with his explorations of themes, but this is perhaps his most accessible of journeys, as well as his most emotionally charged film. A beautiful character study which will make you laugh, invoke occasional anger, upset, and indeed leave your face wet with tears by the end. So that's Andy's review of The Whale, and this is my review of a film that landed just in time for Valentine's Day, landed on Netflix, and that's Your Place or Mine. I got an idea. I'm coming to L.A. for a week. I'm going to look after Jack and you can stay here. I don't know. You need help. Let me help. Taking care of Jack is a lot of work. I think I got this. I hope that you get what you want out of this trip. Find yourself a hottie. Maybe get waxed. Waxed? Oh, waxed. Waxed. Oh, well, that's just not going to happen. This place is amazing. Hi, I'm Debbie. The Debbie? Peter talks about you all the time. I am a scotch embarrassed. I'm not wearing anything under this. Oh, don't worry about it. We've all done the thing where we knock on the door half naked for some... My mom always says you're terrible with women. <laughs> she does, huh? So what happens next? Uh, can we stay on message? Do you always answer a question with a question? Do you always answer a question to a question with a question? Story takes place two decades after having a one-night stand. Debbie, played by Reese Witherspoon, and Peter... Ashton Kusher, where's he been for the last 10 years, are now platonic friends living in LA and New York, respectively. When a babysitter lets Debbie down, the pair agree to home swap for a week. Could this experience unlock their long-held romantic feelings? And I bet you know the answer to that before <laughs> I've even started. I wanted to watch this because, A, for Netflix, there was a, a big draw in the names of Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher, uh, who are both in this kind of movie, very easy on the eye, and are the kind of the perfect candidates for this sort of film. Also into the mix, throw in scriptwriter and now director Aline Brosh McKenna, who was responsible for the script for Devil Wears Prada. And that's when I thought, you know what, I'm going to give this a go. Now, as a big fan of Craig Mason's and John August's uh, podcast, in which Aline Brosh McKenna is often a guest, I kind of feel like I, I know her. Um, she's very open. She has that kind of New York Jewishness that uh, reflects in all of her work. And this being her directorial debut, I felt like I owed it to her. I felt like I was making it up and I'm doing it just for just for her. Sadly, though, what we get is a hint of a much better film. And this film isn't it. Hmm. Not that it's awful. Not that it's bad. Not that it does anything different with the romantic comedy. It's, it's neither romantic or it's not really comedic. It just kind of, well, it just kind of is. It's one of those films which is 
paint by numbers. You've seen it all before. It's got that rom-com forgettability. Uh, the characters have charm. But when you hire Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher, that's what you're going to get. Is it worthy of a watch? Is it a night for a bit of so sofa-based Valentine's goodness? Yeah. But you know what? It'll just sort of swim over you in a kind of warm, well, wasn't that an interesting way to kill an hour and a half? Let's do a jigsaw now. And, and that's the problem. It brings nothing new to the romantic comedy uh, genre. And what it does is it just kind of makes you think there are some better ones out there. I'd rather spend the time. Not awful, not fantastic, just kind of okay. I saw it pop up on my recommendations. And same as you, the, the names involved have intrigued me. But since then, I've heard multiple things just saying it's just... It's just very predictable and average. Yeah, yeah, that's the best thing you can say about it. I have heard people say that the standout in it is Tig Notaro. Yes, oh yeah, who's, who's, who's absolutely awesome. Who? Uh, but aren't they always, in every film that they're, even Army of the Dead, yeah. they took a nothing role and made it their own. Yeah, that's your place or mine on Netflix. My last film that I'm going to talk about this week is the... Jennifer Lawrence starring and produced film on Apple TV Plus, Causeway. I just never thought I would come back here. You don't got love for this city? It's not the city. It's that house. I'm the only one that made it out. I, I got a job. You did doing what? Cleaning pools. What are you doing? Pools. I'm cleaning them. Hey, look, if it get dark now, you just you just ride it, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence produces and stars in this feature by first-time director Lila Nujbauer, which looks at the life of a soldier, Lindsay, played by Lawrence, returning home after experiencing traumatic brain injury and trying to readjust to normal life. Whilst doing so, she strikes up an unlikely friendship with James, played by Brian Tyree Henry, an auto mechanic who is also living with his own physical and mental trauma after a car accident which saw his nephew killed. Lawrence has certainly expanded her range over her last few films, with a very diverse mix of characters across Mother, Red Sparrow and Don't Look Up. In Causeway, there are moments during which she's almost unrecognisable as she becomes the character of Lindsay entirely, with a grounded performance that even though the story overall doesn't really explore anything we haven't seen before, it compels you to be engrossed. Tyree Henry brings a great presence to the screen and shows leading man chops in a solid support role for which he's deserving of the nomination that he's had for the Academy Award. Overall, Causeway is an engaging and understated drama with two solid central performances that whilst it doesn't quite reach the heights of that the star power would suggest, it still captures the attention for the tight 92-minute runtime that it has. So that's this week's reviews. Andy, possibly, is anything landing this next week? Is, is there anything out there for us to enjoy? Anything next week? Is it going to be a quiet one? Well, somewhere in the quantum realm... <laughs> There's a, a film coming out with a man like an ant and some wasp kind of thing. Yes, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, is on our doorsteps. And it's being pitched as the start of the next phase. And this is going to be the huge, key, critical Marvel film to tell us where it's going going forwards. Will it? Well, we'll let you know next week. Also this weekend, it's within the shortlist for Best Animated Feature, and that's Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, get to release across cinemas in the UK. That's has such good word. Such a lot of good word, and I'm so looking forward to it. 
watching this one. Bullet Train lands on Now TV and Sky. I had a lot of fun with this film. I'll probably will re rewatch it when it lands yeah, this you week. Know what? I think I will. Uh, Brian and Charles also lands on Now TV and Sky. On Netflix, we've got Remember, which sees six high schoolers stuck in a murderous time loop. Ah, oh, that old chestnut. Unlocked. A woman's life turned upside down when a dangerous man finds her lost cell phone and uses it to stalk her. Oh, that old chestnut. Amazon, Star Trek Picard, season three. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And Apple TV Plus, Sharper, which sees Julianne Moore and Sebastian Stan in a high-paced psychological thriller in which not all people are who they seem to be. I've heard there are twists aplenty within it. It's not a bad week, really, for releases. We'll be talking about it again next week. Well, that's us done. Yeah, another show over. But before we go, our neat things. Stuff that we've done. Stuff that we've enjoyed. Did we eat it? Did we play it? Did we watch it? Did we listen to it? Well, you decide. Because now it's time for our neat things. And Andy always goes first. So let's not break with tradition. So this week, I'm going to throw out something that I've recently finished listening to on Audible. Yes, Audible is a regular thing that I go back to because, hey, I use it to accompany my travel. As you know from past neat things, I do like my biographies and I do like my looks at people's lives. And I finished listening to Trejo by Danny Trejo over this past week. And man, that is a biography that I urge everyone to either listen to or go and buy. Danny Trejo, as we know, always plays the, the well, he started his career in film playing the Mexican thug, henchmen or side characters. And he's so, slowly grown to show a humorous streak and a bit more within his roles over the years. But the reason why he was typecast like that, for those who aren't aware of this, is because Danny Trejo was a thug. Danny Trejo yeah. was addicted to drugs from an early age. He got into so many gang fights, crime, locked away, looked like he was going to be a lifer incarcerated. And this is him telling his life story of how he turned it all around when he finally got himself off his drugs and alcohol problem, went completely sober, set up help groups for people stuck in the system themselves and became not just a spokesperson for people who can reform, but an inspiration for people worldwide who want to do better, want to better themselves, want to break their cycle of abuse, the break their cycle of hate and violence that have been affecting their families. It's very touching. His family relationships are covered. His criminal life is covered. He doesn't shy away from sharing anything because he feels that you need to embrace everything that you've been in order to accept and move on from what you are. And it's because of people like Danny Trejo and such a great life story like this that I'm quite forgiving for the people within the Hollywood circuit who people are calling to cancel because of some misdemeanor that they've done. Everyone can get better because if we're going to cancel all of like your Ezra Millers, etc., well, maybe we should have canceled Danny Trejo years ago. Thankfully, we didn't because thankfully people can grow and Danny Trejo is an inspiration. Trejo by Danny Trejo. It's out there to buy or like listen to on Audible. Get it checked out. So my neat thing, it's not a, a recent neat thing. It's a neat thing that goes back for many, many years. And as many of you will know, because I mention it more than once on the show, uh, my all-time favourite film is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which for screenwriter William Goldman was an absolute uh, passion project. The story of uh, Cassidy and Longabauer, who were fascinating outlaws, and he created one of the greatest films of all time with such a, a stellar cast of Paul Newman and Robert Redford and Catherine Ross and directed by George Roy Hill. But interestingly enough, because of the week of the passing of Burt Bacharach, 
I want to talk about the soundtrack album because it is a delight. George Roy Hill decided very early on that he wanted uh, a non-traditional Western score for this. He wanted music to match the demeanor of the two principals. Uh, he wanted a contemporary score, uh, contemporary to the 1960s, and he went to the iconic Burt Bacharach, who was at that time a pop icon to create the score for the film. And the score still stands out today. Yes, it is, by modern standards, uh, incredibly dated. But for the time it came out, it captured the, the essence of the film perfectly. It's a character-driven film, and the songs and the music are all about character. It's wonderful. It flows. It's light-hearted. It perfectly captured Bacharach's talent, and it perfectly catches the joyousness and the relationships of the characters. Standout in particular for me is a, a track called South American Getaway, uh, which is used to support the Bolivian montage robbing scene where our trio are seen fleeing into the hills. And Bacharach scores this with unconventionally a sort of a jazz syncopated wordless vocals. It's genius. And of course, you can't think about Butch Casting Sundance Kid without raindrops keep falling on my head, which offers uh, a bit of a slapstick interlude within the film, but the song lives on. It, it's a beautiful soundtrack. Originally, a Apparently there was 26 minutes uh, of music for the film, but eventually there was only 12 minutes that made into the into the final film. But they are 12 minutes of utter delight. So if you can, it's out there on Spotify. It's out there on Apple Music. Find the soundtrack to Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid by the late, great and very wonderful Burt Bacharach. And that's my neat thing for this week. And that's it. For this week's show. Andy, always a pleasure. Can't do the show without you because, well, you edit it. I'm recording it. <laughs> record it and produce this. And I'll see you next week. Well, I'll probably see you in the week for Ant-Man and Wasp. Ultimania. Yep. Um, hopefully we'll both get a chance to see that. And hopefully we'll both get a chance before next weekend to get to see Marcel Rochelle with shoes on as well, which we've both That's got our so. eyes on. But you'll find out next week what we think about them if and if we ever did get round to them. We'll be back with all the same stuff. Deep dives, neat things, reviews, views and box office. But not this. And Andy, boy, I got vision. And the rest of the world, where's bifocals? Uh, we need to decide on what, what weird voice I'm going to go into this week. Uh, we've not made a choice on that yet. So. <laughs> I, I think, just, I've, done, I think I've done the Arnie to death. So. <laughs> yeah, just do the weird riff. One. I once filmed... <laughs> one of the funniest things I've ever <laughs> End done. End of conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'll just leave it there. I once, I once filmed... filmed. <laughs> a bit, uh, I'll start that again. We've got a deep dive into, as we mentioned earlier, in a, if you're listening on radio, we didn't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> Twelve inch remix. All right. Thank you for noticing. I'll put my trousers up now. But not on your head. Man Wolf. There, I'm calling it. I want to see a Man Wolf series. I thought you were just calling me names then. We finally get around to this week's deep dive. Peter we're Jackson adapted about. the book a lot quicker than we've got around to talking about it. <laughs> Do you know what um, a baculum is? What a what? A baculum. What's a baculum? It's a raccoon's penis bone. <laughs> okay, random facts. <laughs> there you go. It's because I, I, I misspelled lovely bone. <laughs> There's kind of my point with this, and I think... I've just knocked the mic down. <laughs> stay, stay calm. The mic's down. There's a mic down. Mic down. Mic down. <laughs>
We'll be back next week with another. 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 We'll be back with another. Yes. <laughs> I nearly was, I started to become mm. Captain Jack then. All over the place you are. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go back to ET. Ouch. Um, I nearly went into Kermit instead. This week on the Muppet Show tonight, we've got. That's um, the Muppet Show. Yeah. There's another one. Only and now we're going into our reviews. Woo! Only we'll be back with another deep dive. We'll be back with another deep dive. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. I'll be right here. <laughs> Did we eat it? Did we play it? Did we watch it? Did we listen to it? You if it bleeds, we can kill it. <laughs> There's only 12 more days till Christmas. <laughs> Holy shit, that year went past fast.